and turn in your copy of God's Word to Micah. And if you need to look in the index, do it. It's fine. No problem. There's going to be a time, a section in here when we, you'll probably need your Bibles open. We do usually put the scriptures up there. But there's uh, one place that uh, it will be helpful for you guys to have it open so you can look and see. Uh, when we unhitch Christmas from Christ, we're left with a season of uh, maybe sentimentalism, cards and banners, songs of peace and joy and love, but without any real deep understanding of our need of peace and joy and love, and uh, not really any sense of how we can get that kind of life, and if we do seem at some moment of our life to maybe have a little bit of peace, joy, and love, we have no sense of how to keep it. So the story of Christmas doesn't start in Bethlehem. The story of his coming starts in eternity past at the Father's side, and it runs throughout history, all of history. It runs through the pages and stories of the Old Testament right up until the incarnation of Christ in the New Testament, the God-man. And it, it runs through his perfect life and his cruel death, but needed death on the cross for us. And it runs through his resurrection and right on to eternity future, eternity without end. No, the story of Christ doesn't start and begin in Bethlehem, but it does run through Bethlehem. And we're meant to see an encouragement of that text of how it runs through Bethlehem and in Micah and in Matthew today. And that's going to be our teaching. A king will come from the little town of Bethlehem, and he shall be an everlasting light, and he shall be our peace. He shall rule the world with justice and with truth and with grace. And as we consider these truths from Micah and Matthew, let me start with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we open your word today, would you show us Christ? And in doing so, would you strengthen our hope in him? And would you make all your promises a, a reality to us this Christmas day, that we could live in them and from them? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, let's say, we, Living Hope Kids, we usually have a slide for what we're going to do next. And we just had a Christmas party. And let's just imagine, kind of roll back the weeks a few weeks ago to before our Christmas party. And that slide said, we're going to have a Christmas party. We're going to bring out the pumpkins and the scarecrows. And, and we're going to spend, uh, put some fall leaves around the tables. And we're going to decorate with kind of colors of orange and yellows and darker reds and browns. Do you think it would be, be looking a lot like Christmas? No, they'll be looking a lot like what? Fall, yeah. Thanksgiving, fall, uh, fall festival, that party would be different. Now, instead of that, what if we pulled out the Christmas tree and the lights and the presents and the stockings and the Santa Claus and the reindeer and sleighs and all kind of Christmas goodies and maybe we ended it with like a traditional Christmas movie like, uh, well, it's a wonderful life or home alone. <laughs> Depends on how, how far you go back. Would that be beginning to look a lot more like Christmas? Yeah, but both of them will be missing something or someone. What would both of those parties be missing? Christ. Okay. Yeah, both of those parties will be missing Christ, and it would, be missing, it would be missing the Christ that makes Christmas Christmas. If you take Christ out of Christmas, what are you left with? Mus, right? Or mass. Oh, by the way, that word, uh, Christus Mese, is a word that originated in 1038, almost a thousand years ago in the Roman Catholic Church. The word mass means a, a religious gathering. And so Christmas means the mass of Christ. 
And if we take Christ out of the religious gathering, we're not left with a whole lot. Matter of fact, in Malachi, God says if you take Christ out of the religious gathering, then you should keep the people away from that religious gathering. Why? It would be harmful for them to be there. Because what that religious gathering would be trying to say is, hey, we can have hope outside of Christ. And once we take Christ out of Christmas, then we've taken the hope out of Christmas and out of, the, out of his coming. And uh, Christmas without Christ is an attempt to offer hope when there is no hope without, without him. A few years ago, a famous pastor, well-known pastor in our area uh, too, uh, declared in a sermon that he was preaching on the book of Acts, I think it was Acts 15, he said that the Christian faith must unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. And he said, and he claimed that Peter, James, this is a quote, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and my friends, we must do it as well. He added, when it comes to stumbling blocks of the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. So it was like, we don't need the Old Testament. My, my prayer today, and I hope that we see quite the opposite in the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament actually says that the Old Testament is there to give us what? Hope and to bring us life and joy. So I pray today, as we look at primarily the Old Testament, with a little bit of the uh, fulfillment of that uh, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that it would lead us to a richer and fuller understanding of Christ, and it would lead us to a more hopeful hope, uh, we could say. So when does the story of Christmas start? Uh, was the first Christmas, uh, did it start at the first Christmas in a lowly manger in Bethlehem? Uh, so when did it start? We've already mentioned it. It started in eternity, right? It started back in eternity at the Father's side. And the Gospel of John, in the very first part of it, and ladies, you guys have been there, right, not too long ago. I guess it's been about a year, John 1. Uh, and he says, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, there's quite a lot of amazing Old Testament predictions and prophecies and promises about the coming of Christ. And we're going to look at one of them about his first coming uh, today. But as we do, let me remind all of us of Romans 15.4. This is a New Testament passage that helps us to understand the benefit of the Old Testament. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times were written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, meaning as we look into them and meditate on them and, and preach them, as we do that of the Old Testament, we might have more hope. And so I hope that's what happens today as we look at Micah. So what is going on in the book of Micah? Israel's rulers, the priests and the prophets, they've been exploiting the poor people, and they've been misleading all the people for their own selfish gain. They rebelled against the Lord. They've turned away from his ways, and the people that were following them were also turning away from, from God's ways. Because of those sins, God's message through Micah was a, a really a terrifying message of warning and judgment. The capital of the north, Samaria, was going to be overtaken by a foreign country, the Assyrians, and then the people of the north, northern part of Israel, was going to be taken captive or exiled. And then uh, Micah also speaks to the southern people, the south people. They said, and what's going to happen is Jerusalem, your capital, is also going to be taken down and destroyed and laid waste by another foreign country, the Babylonians, and you're going to, they're going to take you into exile, and you're going to be exiled into the Babylonians. And this warning, uh, looking at the capital of the north and the capital of the south, 
was meant to be symbolic of the whole nation's downfall, the whole nation of Israel's downfall, and the whole nations of Israel turning away from following the Lord. Amazingly, in the midst of the message of the coming doom uh, and destruction, God gives a message of a coming hope right alongside it, kind of like what Rob said earlier in the scriptures. A lot of times God says, here's the judgment and warning, and immediately followed by, hey, here's a hope of his promises. And Micah does that side by side. He'll give us a, a, a warning of doom and coming doom and destruction, and then it will come. And, but he also gives right alongside it a coming hope. Uh, of restoration and encouragement um, right alongside it, back and forth, chapter by chapter. Um, and we're going to take a brief look at that. Chapters 1 and 2 of Micah, um, God has given accusations against his people, and he's warning them of the coming judgment because of their long, long hundreds of years of rebellion against him. God would remove his protection of his people, and he would give them over to the foreign countries for judgment. And Micah 1, 1 through 3, and then verse 5, let me read. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning uh, Samaria and Jerusalem. So Micah is speaking to the northern uh, country and the southern country of, of Israel both, Judah and Israel. And then verse 2, hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? And so what he's saying is God is looking down on his people, all of his people, and, and he's saying, man, you've tried to boast yourself and make yourselves high, and I'm going to come down and I'm going to put you in your place, right? You're not God and creator. You're not to live for yourselves, but you're to live for me. In chapter 2, the Lord starts focusing more on the leaders of Israel, and, and he starts accusing them and warning them and how they've been um, uh, exploiting the people and especially the poor. Chapters 3 and 4, Micah continues describing Israel's evils and uh, he lays down the great warnings that we've already mentioned, the warnings of the coming disaster and coming of, of the foreign nations, uh, Assyria and Babylonian, uh, Babylon, Babylon, and to destroy the cities and to take the people captive. Mixed throughout all the sections, uh, all the chapters, chapters 1 and 2 gives us doom, but then it gives us hope, and chapters 3 and 4 gives us doom, but it also gives us this great hope of restoration in advance. And, and so what happens is after the, the warning of destruction of Jerusalem in, in chapters 1 and 2, Micah picks up uh, and he says, as terrible as that judgment is, and it's going to come about, it's not the last word for the city, and it's not the last word for the people. I'm going to restore it. And, um, and, he, and he, let me read that, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and this is the, the hope of restoration in the middle of the doom, uh, judgment, and warning. Micah 2, 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go on out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Lots in there. This could be very much a sermon by itself. But God is saying, hey, you're going to be exiled. 
but I'm going to gather you back together eventually. On the other side of the exile, on the other side of the judgment, I will gather the remnant of Israel. And when we think of remnants, how many of you guys sow and you have remnant, pieces of remnants left over, right? You have, and usually you don't like to have a lot of remnants left over, right? Because it's like, well, I spent a lot of money on this fabric and there's a lot left. Or maybe you want a lot left over so you can make more stuff. But here we see the remnant of God is not small. How do we know that? It says because the cities are going to be filled and it's going to be noisy with men. There's going to be lots of people there. So when we think of a remnant, God is going to save many of his people and redeem many of his people. They don't, any of them deserve it, but he's going to save many of them and draw them back together, reestablish the city, and the city will be noisy with men. Um, so let's work our way through our text today, uh, Micah 5, 1 through 5, and see its connection with the promise of God and how that promise is fulfilled uh, to give us hope and restoration and a regathering of his people, uh, that we would be noisy with the glory of the Lord, and how that's, uh, that hope and promise is realized ultimately in, in Christ. I'm going to start, though, instead of Micah 5, I'm going to drop back into chapter 4 and start reading in, ch- in verse 9 and read a few verses in chapter 4, and then we'll go right on into chapter 5. What I want you to do as I'm reading this, I want you to, to recall that Micah's giving these promises uh, of doom and, and warning and judgment, and then followed immediately in the same context by a, a, a hope, a, a promise of hope, then warning and more warning, and then more hope and then more warning, back and forth all the way, all the way through it. Now, uh, the one thing that it's, sometimes it's hard to track, when God makes these promises, a lot of times the promises of God and the prophecies of God in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, but, but both Testaments, there is a near um, a fulfillment, and then there's a further out fulfillment, and then there's a long-term fulfillment. And here's what I mean by that, is that God is saying, hey, uh, you, my people that have turned away from me, there's going to be judgment, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to come, and they're going to take you captive, and you're going to be exiled and judged for, for turning away from me. And that's going to happen in several hundred years, and then a little bit later, this is kind of prediction. Uh, so that's kind of not too long a term, but it, ultimately the hope and help is not going to come just from a, a king that's going to be established uh, immediately, uh, David eventually here, but longer term it's going to be uh, fulfilled in Christ. And we'll see that the same prophecy in the Old Testament has a near fulfillment, for, let's say in the person of David, but it has a further out fulfillment and a more full fulfillment in the person of Christ. So the same prophecy is speaking to two or maybe even three different time periods. Does that make sense? And we have to think through that a little bit. So let's start in um, Micah 4.9. And what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to say, hey, now here's the warning or judgments. And then I'll try to pick, say that this next section is the, the hope of restoration. So first of all, let's start with the warnings and, and the, of judgment. Micah 9 and 10 and then 11. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Is there no, is, is there no leader? Or has your counselors perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Wreathe, or is that wreathe or writhe? Writhe, that's right, thank you. I thought once I said that, that's wrong. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell on the field, and go to Babylon, in exile. Uh, and, and now many nations have assembled together against you who say, let her be polluted and let her eyes gloat over Zion. And then uh, we continue with the warnings in chapter 5, and this picks up on our main text. We are besieged and battled. With a rod, they will strike Israel's ruler on the side of his face. 
And then we get the message of hope and restoration, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Ah, good news. One's coming to help. But immediately we have the more warnings and judgment. So the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. Uh, but uh, then we have more hope of restoration. Next verse, 3. Then the rest of the king's brethren will return and be reunited with the people of Israel, and he will arise or stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for at that time his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So let's work our way through the text a little bit. And it starts off in um, Micah 5.1. We are besieged uh, with a rod that will strike Israel's ruler on the side of his face. Israel at, was being besieged and embattled. The promise was it was going to be besieged even more and embattled even more. Foreign nations, it says, are going to come and, and rise up and gather themselves together against the Lord and against Zion. And in Micah 3.12 it actually says that God's people will be defeated. And they were, for a season, defeated. All seemed pretty hopeless. Um, it says in the, in, the, in the chapter 4 part that we read that they're crying out loud. They have no leader. Agony has, has grabbed them and overtaken them. And, and they're writhing. Why can't I say that word right? Writhing with pain. The, the pain of childbirth. Great pain and anguish. And they're looking, what that, what that means is they're looking for one to be born that can help. Like, we, we need the birth of a helper. We need someone to help. And that low and that miserable estate come the next words in verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So here Micah is addressing not a person, but he's addressing a city, right? Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so he's addressing the city. Why does he use the, the both names? Ephrathah just simply is another name for Bethlehem. Perhaps he's trying to make a distinguishing, uh, distinguish between Bethlehem that uh, the, this king was going to be born from or come from versus another Bethlehem. I don't know. I'm not sure uh, of why he used both. But one thing is pretty clear. He probably used it to connect the King David with the King Christ, the son of David. And we, we see that in 1 Samuel 17, 12. 1 Samuel 17, 12 says, Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And so I think that the reason that he's using both names is to connect Christ, connect David, first of all, with the city, and then Christ with David and the city as well. Uh, a bit more about Jerusalem. Um, I'm sorry, about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known as the city of David, exactly, the city of David. Um, and I think that uh, clearly what's happening here is Micah, and then when we go to Matthew chapter 2 in a bit, we're going to see that the scriptures and God is connecting Jesus, King Jesus, with King David uh, for a reason, because that's the, his promise came through the, the lineage of David. We'll look at that in a minute. Another thing about Bethlehem the word itself means the house of, does anybody know? The house of bread. All right, so Bethlehem is the house of bread. And Jesus is called the living 
bread, right? The bread of life, the one who came to give life to his people. Uh, the next thing we see in the text is Micah means to show a, a really great contrast. And the contrast is between the small, insignificant, little town of Bethlehem, right? And the mighty king that would be birthed or come from Bethlehem. The Christmas carol, O Little, little Town of Bethlehem, speaks to this. It's very, uh, very good and very good theology. In one part of it, it says, um, Yet in thy dark streets shineth, thy, the little town's dark streets, doesn't have a lot of money for lights and all that, pretty insignificant. The everlasting light, the hopes and dreams of all the years are met in thee tonight. And so the Lord says of Bethlehem, from you will come one for me who will be ruler of Israel. So from Bethlehem, and then it says out of the clan or out of the tribe of Ju Judah will come this one. So Judah uh, was one of the 12 sons of, of uh, Jacob. And the tribe of Judah became known as the tribe that produced great kings. What great king, first, uh, first great king came from the tribe of Judah? King David. And then what was the next great king? King Solomon. And then the greatest of all kings, King Jesus, right, came from uh, the clan of Judah. Um, the birth stories of, in Matthew and Luke, where we often go to at Christmas time, they both connect Jesus to Judah, the tribe of Judah, and to Bethlehem, and to all the prophecies that came to David through his seed. Um, and Revelation 5.5 5 says this, But one of the rulers said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, why did God choose to bring the Messiah out of Bethlehem? Well, we've mentioned already that he chose to bring the Messiah out of Bethlehem to connect Jesus with, with David, uh, because the promise to God's people came through the lineage or uh, the, the genealogy, the, the, the son of David, and Jesus is the great son of David. David was a Bethlehemite. But that's not the point of the passage that we're in. The point of the passage that we're in is not saying Bethlehem is a great city of a great King David. It says that Bethlehem was very small and was insignificant, is the text that's there. And, and so there's something else that Micah is trying to get at by saying that, that this great king was coming out of a place that was small and insignificant. I was looking at the top 100 cities to live in in the United States two days ago, and I wasn't looking at it because I wanted to move. I love Anderson, and you're stuck with me, all right? So, uh, but I was looking at it because my son was talking about the cities that he wanted to live in, and he was saying this is like in the top five, and so I was looking it up, and, and Anderson didn't make the list. Uh, Greenville was the 43rd in the list I was looking at. And, uh, and I think Anderson's better than that. But anyway, uh, beside the point. In, in their day, Bethlehem didn't make the top list either. It was very insignificant. It was a lowly place. And we, asked, we, we need to ask the question, why did God choose such a lowly town, an insignificant place, uh, to birth the great kings and to birth the king of kings and the Messiah of all messiahs? Um, I think he did that so that our boast wouldn't be in man or wouldn't be in cities, but it would be in God alone. Uh, I don't know if you know much about cities these days, but it, it, they, they want to make a name for themselves. Our, our Anderson wants to make a name for itself, right? We change things all the time. We're a great city. And God was saying, I don't want anybody to say, well, of course the Messiah would come out of that city. That's a great city. It would birth people like that. No, uh, the Messiah came from God alone, not from not from man. Um, but, but Jesus was not only from Bethlehem. 
he was, he was born there because his family was traveling, right? Where was his hometown? Like he was born there, that was his hometown in one sense. But where, where did Mary and Joseph live? Nazareth. Oh, well, maybe Nazareth is one of those top-tier cities, right? You know much about? It's not. Nazareth is even worse. It's like all the scum of the earth are there, and it's a very small little place, and there's not many, it's not very populated. Matter of fact, in John 1, 46, and this is a story when Jesus is gathering his followers and disciples, the 12 of them, uh, the main ones, the apostles. Uh, this is what Nathaniel said uh, to Philip. He said, can any, anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come there? And Philip said, come and see. Maybe. Um, and uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, I want to read that, uh, this thinking through, not boasting, and God uh, bringing great things out of small things. It made me think of this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Let me read that. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, that's Bethlehem, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, here's the purpose, why did he do it? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who is the one who brought the, the Messiah and Redeemer? It wasn't the great town of Bethlehem or the men from Bethlehem or the rulers from Israel. It was God alone. He's the one that sent Christ for you and me. Now, there's two other things I want us to pick up in this part of the verse. It says that one, one shall come, one, a particular one shall come from you or out of you. You'll give birth to a particular one, uh, and that one will, will come from you for me. And when it says for me, there's a couple of things that, that that brings to mind when it says for me. God says from you will come one for me. Uh, first of all, it's God who does the saving and redeeming for him. He's the one that uh, is, is putting together salvation and bringing the Messiah to save his people from their sins. And, it, and it's also in this sense for him, for his glory. So as he redeems us and saves and, and seeks us out and makes us his own, he does so for his glory. So first of all, he does it for him, uh, comes the Christ, and for him uh, comes the people to be uh, uh, living for his glory and his pleasure and not our own. The second thing we get in this text, it says, whose origin, the one that's coming forth from Bethlehem, his origin is from of old. And then one text, one English text, says from ancient days or from eternity. Um, the King James uses one of those two texts. I believe this is speaking to, to several things. The origin of Christ that it's talking about Jesus, it, it ties him back to the old days, to ancient days. And I think it's tying him back to David, it's tying him back to Abraham, and it's tying Jesus back to Eve. He's called the seed of Eve, he's called the seed of Abraham, and he's called the offspring or seed of David. And so I think that what's meant by this is that it's tying him back to those ancient days. But um, that's where many theologians stop. What they don't think, they don't think it ties them back to eternity and to God. I think it actually speaks to that part, too. It, takes, it ties him back to eternity and God. I think it does both things. Let me take us to a couple places in the scriptures uh, where I think that will help us see that it does both things. First of all, Nehemiah 12, verse 46. Um, For from of old, 
in the days of David. And so we see that the scriptures, a scripture writer says, David's days are of old, and it's tying Jesus back to David, those days. Uh, the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Hebrews 1.12. And like a mantle, you will roll them up, and like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same. It's talking about Christ. And your years will not come to an end. Isaiah 9.6. We've already read this once in our Isaiah reading. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be, called, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. So these three texts together show us that Christ was pre-existing. Um, wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Eternal or Everlasting Father. And, and so he was pre-existing before anything was made. And he also exists forever. It says your years will not come to an end. That's our Messiah. Christ never had a beginning. And he will never end, and he's the one that you and I's hope is in. And that, that God will never, you know, he's always the same. Beautiful truth. Uh, but in keeping with the way Micah writes, uh, these great truths that we can grab a hold of, the next, the next verse is this judgment again, verse 3. Uh, says this, so the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies. Hmm. And yet, in this particular warning, right in the middle of it, is there, there's a glimpse of hope. The Lord will hand his people over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. So yes, the warnings of rebellion and judgment for that rebellion are real. And that judgment is going to come on the rebellious and sinful people. They'll get the punishment. Uh, God will give them over to their enemies, it says, for a season of time. They will be exiled, um, but... They will only be exiled and given over until the birth of this one, right? Until the birth of Christ is what it's saying. Until the Messiah comes. And then while we were yet sinners, while we we're still in exile, under judgment, at that point uh, when the pains of childbirth are, are greatest, we read the next verse, uh, verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord by the sovereign authority of the Lord, his God. One's going to arise. The one from Bethlehem is going to come and um, burst on the scene. And when the Jews heard Micah's prediction that a ruler would come and shepherd his people, they would have thought of David, first of all, and they would have thought of David's greater son that was promised. They would have thought in, in advance of this, this one that was promised his seed that was going to be the Messiah of Messiahs, who they didn't understand uh, was going to be named Jesus Christ, but they understood he was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be the Christ. So with these links, um, Micah is reasserting the certainty of God's promise for David. Uh, he said to David, I will shepherd my people, and I will shepherd my people through one of the offspring. So what I, what I want to do is tie this back into Samuel a bit, uh, 2 Samuel. That's where we are in our regular teaching. So 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 through 16, this is uh, some phrases and some of the verses, kind of a select text from the scripture up here. I will rise up uh, or raise up your offspring after you. So we saw that in Micah, that one is going to raise up or stand up. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body. And here it's from Bethlehem. And this, he's talking to David. It'll be from David to Bethlehem. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And, and, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so 
uh, Micah is tying in this one who's going to come and the promise of David to Jesus Christ. He is the one. So about 700 years uh, before the Messiah Christ's birth, this prophet Micah declared that from Bethlehem, a Savior would come, a Redeemer of his people. And after the time that God would give his people over to the foreigners, after their time of exile and after the time of judgment, on the other side of it, there was the greatest hope that he would restore and regather his people and his city, rebuild his city, and not just a few people, but a large remnant, so much so that the city would be noisy with people. Uh, that was his promise, that one would come and rule the world with righteousness, with justice, with truth, and with grace. So the, the chief priest and, and the scribes knew that Micah was talking about this Messiah who was coming. Um, and, and so when King Herod in the New Testament ask where was this Messiah going to be born, they knew exactly where he was going to be born, and they told King Herod, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You should know it. Well, let's read from Matthew 2. I'm going to read all the first six verses. When Herod, the king, heard this, and what he means is that he heard that Jesus was going to be born king of the Jews and that men were going to worship him. When he heard this, and that was the verses before, um, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, he asked them, where, where the Christ was to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, he's quoting Micah. He changes one thing. Micah says that this, this city is small and insignificant. And Matthew's like, by no means uh, is this Bethlehem insignificant. And do you understand why, why the difference? The difference is like now that Christ is being born there, ah, there's significance coming out of that city, coming out of that place, and that's the difference. So, um, and not only did the chief priests and the scribes understand that Micah was talking about Jesus, this coming Messiah, but in John 7, a, a really neat passage, John 7, 42, it says that the people understood the Old Testament scriptures that they were speaking about this Messiah that was going to come. And in John 7, 42, the people asked, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Uh, and, and if you remember in Luke 24, 22? 24, 24, uh, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and these two men are saying, these things are happening and the Christ was crucified. We thought he was going to, you know, do these things and and, and now some, some women are saying that he's risen from the dead. We don't know what to make of all this stuff. And Jesus opens the scriptures, and it says that he showed them what must take place. Didn't you know that Jesus had to do this? Well, here, John 7, 42, the people got it right. They read the scriptures, and they were like, hey, this Micah is talking about Jesus who's coming. Not simply David, but talking about Jesus who's coming. So both the leaders and the people knew that Micah 5 was a prediction of the coming Jesus, the Messiah, who would be the ruler of Israel, but so much more than just the ruler of Israel. Let me read verses 4 through 5 again. And he will uh, arise, or stand up, your version might say, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for at that time his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, this one, will be our peace. Did you hear all the promises of God in there? Let's go through them briefly. First of all, uh, it's this, that little part of the text. We can just leave that verse up there. That part of the text says that, that this Messiah is not going to wait for his people to just come back to him. If this Messiah just simply waited for his people to return, 
they never would. In their sin, they would remain away. But this Messiah is going to stand up. He's going to arise, and he's going to seek and save that which was lost and that which went astray. And he's going to arise on the strength of the Lord and seek and save the lost. Second thing, he'll pastor his, his, or shepherd his people, his flock. And what does a good shepherd provide? What does a good shepherd provide his flock? Can you give me one thing? Safety. All right, what else? Food and provisions, right? Um, and, and so he's going to shepherd his flock. He's going to give them food and drink. He's going to lead them by quiet and still waters and green pastures. And, and by the way, when I first typed this, I, I said pastures. And I was like, I'm not, I don't want you to have a green pasture. But anyway, green pastures. Uh, there will be no need in Christ that's unmet. That's what he's saying. The Messiah, Messiah is not going to wait for the people to return. He's going to go after them and seek and save the lost. And then he'll shepherd them and bring them back in, the green pastures and still waters. And every need that we have um, will be met in Christ. If there's something that's not met, it means it's not an ultimate need of yours. Third thing, in shepherding his people, he'll do so in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord. Uh, what he's saying there is he's going to do it with a strength that's omnipotent, the omnipotent strength of God. He's going to shepherd his people. That means that there's nothing, not anything, that can come against his people that, can, that, that God can't remove and take away. So no, no matter your loneliness and anxiety and fears and troubles, if you're in Christ, God will, in, in Christ, um, come to your rescue, come to your aid. Uh, fourth thing, and it says, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. There's no enemy that will not be subdued by Christ. Our security is certain. What a, what a great shepherd. His greatness, his rule, his reign is not just going to be over Israel, but his rule and reign is going to be what? He'll cover the whole earth, the whole world. He will rule over the whole world. The whole world will be filled with his glory. And fifthly, finally, he will be our peace. So uh, I want to go back to Micah 4. And in Micah 4, the first seven verses, we're going to see a good metaphor of this peace that God through Christ brings. And we're going to also see uh, an answer or a help to help us understand a verse that I skipped over. How many of you guys knew I skipped over a little section? Oh, a couple of you saw that. All right. You guys watch for that. I want you to watch for that every time. Uh, um, usually do it intentionally, but if I don't know the answer, I do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to find an answer to that verse 3. So let's, let me read verses 1 through 7 of Micah 4. Uh, this is some beautiful tr truths. This is a section of hope and restoration, by the way. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. Do you remember that God's going to come down and crush the, as we're trying to be raised up, he's going to crush us, but then he's going to come and raise up gloriously uh, the house of the Lord. And it will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that, that we would walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they train or will they know war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. 
Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forevermore. So let's start by looking at the, the verse that we skipped in, in chapter 5. In this uh, verse, it's the section 3b through 5a, 4a. 3b, verse 3b, the last part of 3, and the first part of 4. It says, Then the rest of the king's brethren will return and be reunited with the people of Israel. Who are the king's brothers? Who is the, who is the king, king's brethren? It's the remnant of the Jews that he returns back, and then it's uh, also a number from the foreign nations that he calls to himself, and he goes and wins, wins them. And, and so this, this, uh, this house of God is going to be made up with lots of people. It's going to be noisy with men, noisy with a lot of, of the Israelites, but also noisy with men, uh, the remnant of God. And so we think about the remnants of God. I, I, I thought about this this morning. We talk about remnants. When, when Jesus fed the 5,000, how many remnants of food were there? 12 baskets were, were left over. Baskets enough to feed many more. So not just the people of Israel that are his people, but also uh, the people of all the nations that would come and call upon this Lord, uh, upon the Lord will be established in him. Kind of a, a beautiful picture. So the rest of the king's brethren are the Jews that, that um, are the people of God that um, of Israel that he's going to bring back and also those who will be united with him from the foreign places. Um, now the second thing in, the, in this section is it, it helps us to have a metaphor of what does this peace look like? This one that comes from Bethlehem will be our peace. Now I just want to ask you a question today. Where are you today? You know, what's your condition? Are you coming here? Uh, does everything in your life always go great for you? Always? It's always wonderful. Man, never have troubles, never have trials, never have conflicts, never have issues, never have problems. Uh, here's an amazing thing about Micah and the promises and of restoration and hope that he gives all the way through his book. Micah is asserting the certainty of God's covenant promises to Israel, not at a time when they're doing really, really well. Micah is giving these promises and, 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 and re bringing them up to, to Israel when they're looking at doom and judgment and gloom and things are not going that well for them. They're, they're being besieged. And by the way, he's, not, he's bringing this hope when what they're looking forward to is exile. And what they're looking forward to is their cities being like destroyed. You know, he's speaking to something past that time. And so it's, I think it's kind of neat, and we need to look back on what God has done for us in Christ's coming, but we need to look ahead as we go through these conflicts, and you know, our lives seem to like not be all adding up to be wonderful and peace, love, and joy, but man, I'm troubled, and this Christmas I have all these things. We need to be looking ahead of that and saying there's, there's a promised peace coming, and, and we, get, we can look at that, and what Micah was doing is before all this stuff ever happened, and it did happen in the judgment and exile, he was saying, hey, on the other side of this, there's a real hope. And he, and he describes it in great ways. And he says, pull that hope into the present situation and let it help you carry you through the day of troubles and, and trials and conflicts. One day, uh, the ruler of the king of the kings will return and he will bring that peace, that shalom to his world. He will shepherd his people and he will gather them back together and he will rebuild uh, the city, the house of God, and his people will come and his people from other nations will come, and it will be noisy with men. 
Um, let's end by reading from Micah uh, uh, in chapter 7. Really, I think a, a picture of how Christ will bring this peace and what it looks like. This is Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. We'll end with this. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? Do you hear that? The people really do rebel. We really do rebel. And we really have no hope unless he passes over that, that sin. He pardons our iniquity. But he does that for his people. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in his unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Man, this is God's a covenant-keeping God. And the way he keeps his covenant primarily is through sending his son Christ to redeem his people from their sin. In the last slide, from a small town comes a great king, and that one is our hope and our peace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can go back to the Old Testament and we can read of what's coming and we can gain great hope knowing that, Father, there's judgment for those who sin and that judgment is great. We will be exiled and put out of your house. But, Father, for those people who are your people, it's not forever, that you will uh, arise and you'll stand. You won't wait for us to come to you because we want in our own condition of, of being dead in sin. And you come to us and you rescue us and you restore your people. And Father, you, you take our sin away and, and cast it into the depths of the sea and you pay for it and, and so that the, the punishment of that sin doesn't fall on your people, but it falls on Christ. That, that one who gives us peace, shalom. And Father, today I, I pray for all of us who uh, don't have it all together, who don't have uh, life without trials and conflicts and lonelinesses and anxieties. We thank you that we have this word of hope right alongside all those troubles and anxieties that we can grab a hold of. And Father, as agony overtook um, some of the people when they didn't know Christ, I pray that the hope would overtake us even in the, in the midst of troubles, that we would see that you promised that one would come from Bethlehem out of the, the root of David and, and the lineage of David, and, and you would establish your house and you establish us in your house from this time forth and forevermore. And Father, today, lastly, I pray for those, if there's any here that are not uh, a part of your, your house, if they're not connected to, to Christ, the Redeemer, if they're still in, in exile and not part of your body, uh, I, I pray, first of all, that you would go after them and you would redeem and rescue them. I pray that they would turn to you and call upon your name and be saved this day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and receive.